Amen. So it's good to be back home with you guys. I've been traveling quite a bit the last month. Um, have, yeah, have missed, have missed being with you regularly, but uh, it was exciting to be able to go visit the land of Israel. And uh, although I'm not going to have a lot of time to talk about that this morning, um, I look forward to being able to share more with, with all of you in the near future about my travels and uh, discoveries uh, over there in the land of Israel. So, uh, but it's good to be back. We're in the middle of a series that we've been looking at uh, entitled Renovation. Because although he won the battle, we are still works in progress, are we not? And we have, God is working to shape our identity. He's working, he's chiseling away at us in order to create in us something that is new from something that was old and broken. Amen? Amen. As a matter of fact, in the middle of 2 Corinthians, the book in which we're looking at, there's a verse, and it's 2 Corinthians 5.17, and it says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now that's what God is wanting to do in each one of our lives. Because there were old things, were there not? There were old ways that we used to live. Well, we used to follow the desires of our flesh, follow the desires of our sinful nature. But when we came to Christ, we recognized that he was the one that paid the price on Calvary for our sin. He did something new in us. And he continues to do something new in us until we see that same God that we sang about. The God of Moses, the God of David, the God of Mary, the God of Jacob. We're going to see him face to face one day. But until that day, he has work to do in each one of our lives. He is shaping us into something new. And you know what? Sometimes it takes discipline. It takes discipline in our lives, does it not? to bring about the change that is needed in our lives. This morning I've entitled my message, The Fruits of Repentance. The Fruits of Repentance. We're coming to a section in the book of 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is going to get real. He's going to get down to business with the Corinthian church. And it involves a call to repentance. Now this call for repentance in the church in Corinth it was needed at the time. Paul had written to them and instructed them about their need to repent. We're going to look a little deeper in what that, what that means. But it's still applicable to us today. Because even though at Crossroads Church in 2023, we might all think we have our act together, sometimes God says, no, I don't think so. And he's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to make some changes in our lives. Finish this sentence for me, if you would. This is going to hurt me. Wow, a few of us have heard that, huh? Well, I grew up with, uh, you know, under the era of corporal punishment. You guys know what corporal punishment is? Yeah, it's called the little whipping on the butt. And it happened in schools or in your house. And I have to admit, and my children know, that they've received a swat or two from their dad. But I had a dad who believed in the power of a good swat, right? In the power to affect change through a good spanking. And, you know, 
Sometimes we lie, though, right? As parents, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I mean, come on. Is that real? Well, in some way it is, right? Because here's the reality. A father or a mother, um, it's a difficult thing to watch your children suffer. It's one of the most painful experiences is to watch your children go through pain and suffering. And so when we become the agent of discipline in our children's lives, that can be painful for us as well. But I still think it probably hurts them a little bit more than it hurts us, if we're honest. What's well, absolutely true that as a parent, it's difficult to watch your kids suffer. And for the past several weeks, we've been going through this series in 2 Corinthians where Paul has served as a spiritual father to this church. Now, I know Father's Day is next week, but fathers are so amazing that maybe it takes two weeks to celebrate them, right? <laughs> Amen? We could do that for mothers, too. But this morning, as I was preparing this week, I just kept coming back to this idea of these principles of a spiritual father and how the Apostle Paul was a spiritual father to this church. He was not simply an evangelist who sort of went and shared the gospel, dropped the truth on them, and then just went away, never to care for them again. No, he cared so deeply that he wrote letter after letter, and he, and he had visit after visit to go back and to encourage this church, to go back and instruct this church and see that their lives became more and more like the one that they were supposed to represent, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, we discover that Paul wrote a previous letter to the church. Let's take a look at that real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Now remember, what does it say? Which Corinthians is this? 1 Corinthians. In your Bible, there's two Corinthians, or two letters to the Corinthian church. There's 1 Corinthians, which you would think is the first letter that he wrote. Makes sense, right? 1 Corinthians, first letter that he wrote. But there's a problem here. Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul writes, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral, immoral people. Wait a second. Paul is writing the first letter to the church, and he's saying, I already wrote a letter to you. I already wrote a letter to you. But this is 1 Corinthians we're reading. How did he write a previous letter? I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. In other words, Paul was calling the church to be separate from the world. Why? Because God's called us to holiness. He says, be holy even as I am holy. Why should we be holy? Because the world needs to see an example of something different. And they'll be attracted and say, how come your life's so different? And that opens up the door for you to share why. Michael came up here and he gave five whys. The why, why is my life different? Why am I living my life to please and to honor God? It's because of what Jesus has done for me. And that's the testimony that you can share with the world when your life begins to look different than what they experience. Amen? Amen. So Paul says, I, I want you to not associate with these immoral people. But where is this previous letter that Paul wrote? Where is it? Maybe it was lost to history. Interesting to think about, right? That Paul had written a previous letter to the church. 
But other scholars say, no, we actually have at least part of that letter. And it's contained in this book we call 2 Corinthians, the one we're studying. Let's take a look at that real quick. Last week, we, we studied 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Kurt walked us through this passage. Do you remember what the theme or the topic that Paul addressed? Who was here last week, first of all? All right, there's a lot of hands up. So who remembers the topic that Paul addressed in the section that we went through last week with, with Pastor Kurt? It was to not associate with what kind of people? Do not be yoked together with who? Unbelievers. Do not be associated with those that are immoral. If you're going to live a life of holiness, you can't be hanging out with those that aren't holy in a way that partners with them in life. Does that make sense? You, you, have, to, you have to be in the world to be a light to the world, but you don't need to be of the world. You don't need to be partnering with immorality in Christ. Amen? And, and, and Kurt did a fabulous job of walking through that passage. What's kind of interesting is that passage is exactly what he's referring to that he wrote to them previously. Some scholars believe that that actually was put into 2 Corinthians as part of his first letter to kind of give us the context of what he's talking about here in the passage that I'm going to look at right now. Now, who's confused? Very confused, right? You, talk to me after. We can talk for a half an hour about this subject. All right? If you're interested. Whether this was part of the original letter to the Corinthians that might have been lost to history, or just simply another reminder of what he had shared previously with them, it certainly interrupted his thought in the passage. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Back up with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Let's start there. Paul had just spent an entire five chapters writing to them about I am, a, I am a missionary who wants to share the good news of Jesus with the world. That's what God's called me. He commissioned me to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And he's in Corinth, which is in, like, southern Greece, modern-day Greece. And that day it was known as Achaia, right? And he's in this, he's in this place down there, and, and um, it was a very corrupt area. It was where they would have... Um, all kinds of debauchery. It's like going into Las Vegas today, right? A lot of bad things happening there, a lot of immoral things taking place. Well, that's where this church was planted. That's where the Apostle Paul went with the good news of the gospel. And he says, I came to you with no motives other than to share the good news of Jesus with you. And he's making a defense for, for all these accusations that have been levied against him by people that are trying to undermine his ministry undermine his authority with this church. And unfortunately, this church, at least some of them, had been listening to these voices. And Paul writes, and he writes as a spiritual father to his children that he had shared the good news, and they had responded and say, yes, we want to repent of our sin. We want this Jesus that you talk about. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he goes and he says this, we have spoken openly to you, Corinthians, our hearts has been opened wide. You are not limited by us, but you are limited by your own affections. I speak as to my children. Paul is saying, you're like my kids. 
as a proper response, you should also be open to us. The very next verse, he goes into do not be yoked together with unbelievers. He, he sort of breaks the thought. But if we go right into our passage today, chapter 7, verse 2, listen to what it continues. Accept us. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I have already said that you are in our hearts to live together and to die together. You see, the false teachers of that day, the people that were um, hanging out in Corinth trying to undermine Paul's ministry, they were claiming this. They were saying, Paul's a fraud. All Paul's doing, he's trying to collect this money that he calls missionary money that's going to be used for the good news of the gospel, and he's just using it for his own self. He's a fraud. He's trying to defraud you. And Paul has to say, no, that isn't my intention. And we're going to get to a point in the next few chapters where he again calls for the Corinthian church to be generous because they were blessed with money and resources. And there were parts of the world, especially in Jerusalem, where the church was in poverty. They were being oppressed and persecuted heavily by the Jews. And he wanted to bring money from some of the church to meet the needs of other people in the church. And so he took up a collection for that purpose. And he wants them to know that he's not defrauding them. He isn't corrupted. He isn't wronging anyone. Paul is taking up this missionary offering, and he wants them to know that he can be trusted with it. What consumes a father's heart? What consumes a father's heart? Caring and providing for his children's needs. That's what consumes a father's heart. Do you realize the father's heart towards you? Do you realize that our Heavenly Father cares about meeting our needs? Michael talked about it earlier. That's why he sent his son Jesus into the world, is to take care of our greatest need of reconciliation between him and us. That's the Father's heart towards you and I. And that was Paul's heart towards the Corinthian church as a spiritual father. Verse 4, I have great confidence in you speaking to the Corinthian church. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I am overcome with joy in all our afflictions. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, now Macedonia is northern Greece, and he was traveling in to Macedonia to eventually make his way down to southern Greece where Corinth was at. He's on his missionary journey. This was probably the third missionary journey. You can read about it in the book of Acts, starting in about chapter 19. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside and fears inside. Do you remember a place called Philippi? Those of you guys who are familiar with the book of Acts, what happened in Philippi? Paul got so annoyed with this woman that was driving him nuts that he cast out a demon from her problem was she was like a fortune teller that was helping somebody occupation they got mad and so they threw Paul in prison after they beat him and Silas severely so every time Paul went into a city there seemed to be persecution there seemed to be all kinds of problems that would happen and all he was trying to do is share the good news of Jesus isn't it just like Satan to oppose 
the work of God. Paul experienced that, and he's relaying those experiences to this church in Corinth. Later on in the letter, he'll really get in detail as to what he went through. He says, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside, but God, who comforts the humble, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. Titus was a ministry partner who had been summoned to go to Corinth to deliver a message and to bring back a message from the church to the Apostle Paul. And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I do not regret it, even though I did regret it since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. See, Paul had written a difficult letter. Likely it's 1 Corinthians. We have that letter. He had written a difficult letter because he's constantly on their case about a lot of things that they're not doing right. And that's a tough thing to hear, is it not? Is it a tough thing to receive discipline into our lives? How many love discipline? How many love a bad review at work? Or you need to work on this? Or you've been wrong in this area and you need to correct it? None of us like to to hear that, right? Our egos get in the way many times. Our pride says, I don't need to listen to you. And yet God is constantly trying to work in our lives to bring us a message of we need to work on some things in our lives. And that's difficult to hear. Is it not? But Paul loved these people like sons, like daughters. He was a spiritual father to them. And we have a heavenly father that loves us, loves his children. And he wants us to hear what he has to say. What drives a father's efforts? From this passage, I think, wanting to see his children grow to completion. I know as a father, I, go out, I wake up every day, go to work, toil, right? Mow lawns. Well, my kids mow the lawns a lot. I trim the lawn. None of them seem to know how to work a weed whacker. It's unbelievable to me. But the reality is, why, does, why do fathers go through all the labor? Why do, why do moms go through all the labor that's involved with raising their kids? It's because we love them, and we want to see our children grow to completion. But this involves relational love and discipline, does it not? Relational love and discipline. It's a lot of work to raise, a, raise your kids. Amen? For all the fathers and mothers in here, it's a lot of work. Paul was going through the work. He was traveling. He was facing persecutions just to get to the locations, just to write letters and have them delivered. It wasn't like in that day you could put stuff on social media, right? It took months from the time you wrote a letter to the time it got delivered. And then more months to hear back on how did they respond to my letter. And that was the heartache of Paul. He had written a difficult letter to them to correct some things that were wrong in the church and in their lives. And he wondered, how did they receive it? And he had heard like, they're kind of upset. It upset them. It grieved them to hear what you had to say. And Paul says, that that was hard for me to hear. I don't want to grieve you unnecessarily, but this was important. You needed it. 
My question is, how is your relationship with your heavenly Father? You remember back in verse 7, he says, He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, your zeal for me. And I rejoiced even more. Titus had given them a report that they still care about you, Paul. They still love you. They still want to hear from you. And that just made Paul's heart as a spiritual father glad. You know what makes our Heavenly Father's heart glad? When his children still want to hear from him. When his children still want him involved in their life. That's what God wants from us. Verse 9, now I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Paul isn't saying, I'm happy that you were sad. That's not why he rejoices. Because your grief led to repentance. That's why he's rejoicing. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation. But worldly grief, it just produces death. I want to talk real quick about this idea of godly grief or godly sorrow. That word grief or sorrow, it can, it can literally be trans, uh, translated into English as guilt. There's godly guilt. I thought guilt's a bad thing. Not when it's coming from God. Not when God's conviction through his Holy Spirit is pointing out something that's wrong in your life. That's when guilt is a good thing. Because it's godly guilt. This isn't a false guilt. This isn't the thing that Satan's trying to whisper into our ears. This isn't the thing that we should renounce. What should we renounce? We should renounce false guilt and shame. Guilt comes from the idea that I'm not measuring up with my performance. I'm not good enough. Does Satan whisper that into your ear? You're not good enough? Sure he does. That's where guilt or false guilt can come from in our lives. And we need to renounce that in Jesus' name. Because guess what? God, Jesus is good enough. And we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He makes us good enough in his sight. And we don't have to listen to the lies of Satan and be bound in our own guilt. And what does shame come from? You will never be good enough. You will never be good enough. And we renounce that because Jesus says, you are good enough because I have given you my righteousness. That's what it's all about. But that's not what kind of guilt Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the good guilt or godly guilt that comes from the convicting work of, his, of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Scripture says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Not false guilt or shame. Not his anger, but his kindness. So in the process of repentance, grief and guilt are actually the result of God's kindness and mercy toward us. How does that work? Well, he doesn't want to leave us how he found us. So he's working to reshape our lives. And that's through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's where godly guilt or godly grief or godly sorrow originates. is from his spirit, and it's a good thing. And so the purpose of good guilt or godly guilt is to facilitate repentance away from sin. 
Did you hear that? The reason the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts is because he wants to eradicate sin from our lives. That's a good thing. That's the discipline of the Father, the Heavenly Father, in our lives through his Spirit. Repentance is therefore not general. It's not like, well, I'll just, I'm sorry I've been living this way, I'm just going to go to the meeting. It's not about that. It's always specific. Because the Holy Spirit will convict you of a specific sin in your life. That's how he works. He can see where you're not on track, and he begins to move into your heart, and he, and he reveals that to you, and he leaves that inside of you and says, I love you too much to leave you living like this. Will you please move in, in a new direction? Will you please move in a new direction? So godly grief is a good thing. Now, it's possible for someone to experience guilt over something and yet not be saved. Of course it is. The Holy Spirit is working on the unsaved as well, is he not? He's convicting them of sin and of judgment. And he's wanting to draw them to his son, Jesus. But what about those of us who have already found Jesus? What about those of us who are in Christ? Do we also experience Godly guilt? Sure we do. Sure we do. The focus of godly guilt or regret is all about God. Godly regret or grief is when I'm grieved by the fact that the reproach of my life has been brought upon God's holy name. Did you hear me very carefully? It's not about you, it's about him. We are to reflect him. We are to live for him. And when we aren't consistent with that, it's a reproach on his name. That's why he wants to reshape us. Worldly grief or regret is when you feel sorry for something you did because it leads to humiliation or punishment. That's worldly grief. The focus of worldly regret is me. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I'm the one who has to suffer unpleasant circumstances. And punishment. Worldly regret results in a superficial sorrow that may lead to a temporary change. But when, if there's no genuine turning to Christ for forgiveness, then no real change takes place. Because your character has not changed. Worldly grief does not change your character. So you end up returning to the same sin once the embarrassment of your action wears off. You ever seen that? Somebody's caught, and they're like, oh, man, I shouldn't have had an affair. Uh-oh, it's costing me something. But their, but their life doesn't really change. Their character isn't transformed. It's not a godly guilt. They're not, they're not thinking, I sinned against God. It's a reproach to God. No, it's like, oh, this is really costing me something. Maybe I should kind of, like, change my ways a little bit. Right? That's the difference. I want to illustrate that another way. But first I want to share this. What's the goal of a father's discipline? Repentance leading away from regret and death and into life and peace. That's what your heavenly father is trying to do when he disciplines you. And hopefully that's what we're trying to do as fathers, as earthly fathers, or as spiritual fathers in each other's lives when we see something wrong in our children. We're trying to lead them away from regret 
and death. Does sin lead there? Does sin lead to regret and death? Yes, so we want to lead them away and into life and into peace. Contrast grief between Peter and Judas. You guys know the story of Peter? He denied Jesus three times. And guess what? He ran away. He went back to fishing. Jesus shows up on the shore. says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, it says, was grieved that he asked him three times, do you love me? He was grieved. And he goes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus challenges him with something. Then there should be something different in your life. Feed my sheep. There should be a transformation that takes place. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow leads to death. Guess who else messed up? Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He was also one of the 12 disciples, just like Peter. But in Judas's case, he got to a point where he regretted what he had done. But he regretted like, oh, look at me, I've really screwed up. It's going to be a shame on me. And he ended up taking his own life as a result. That wasn't godly sorrow that led to repentance. No, that was, that was worldly sorrow. He was embarrassed by what he had done, and it led to where? Death. What area in your life is grieving your heavenly father? Do you have a godly grief? A godly sorrow? Are you willing and ready to repent of it? This is the time to do examination. I, I was spending all week examining my own life, thinking about this. Asking God to point out what areas in my heart, in my thought life, in my actions, where I'm grieving him. I'm not re- representing him the way I should. And through his conviction, I said, I want to repent of that. I want to turn away from that. Look at verse 11. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves. In other words, you don't want to be party to the sin that was happening in that church. What indignation. This is mental distress. It means they were taking it seriously what Paul had written them. What alarm. What fear. This is like an alarm at their own passivity. And its injurious effects on those in the church and on their witness in the, in the city of Corinth. What deep longing, deep desire or need to get this settled properly. They couldn't just let it rest. They had to deal with it. What zeal, excessive fervor to do something or accomplish some end. In this case, to make it right. What justice This was a desire to see justice done. That the right things get done and and the wrong people get, get appropriate punishment. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. The Apostle Paul is excited about how the church in Corinth had responded to his difficult letter. To his difficult discipline that he was forced to take with them. So what does repentance look like? It's a godly grief that produces an internal desire. It changes us on the inside to make things right and see justice done even when it's costly. Even when it's costly. 
Repentance can be an occasion for joy when it leads to growth and change in our lives. But what exactly is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in behavior. A true change of mind, which is synonymous for the heart or the inner self, will always result in a change in behavior. Did you hear me? A true change of mind, the inner self, will always manifest itself in a change in behavior. It cannot be faked because whatever is in our hearts will show up in our lives. Simply put, repentance is turning away from sin and self-righteousness and turning to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Another thing is the Bible says there's actually measurable evidences of the genuineness of repentance. We saw them there, right? There was a list of them there given to us. Zacchaeus is an example. He was a thief. He was a tax collector. He had stolen from people. When he met Jesus and said, I want to I change my life, I want to repent of what I've used to do, and I want to turn and follow you, Jesus, there was measurable fruit from his repentance. Was there not? He said, I'm going to pay everybody back more than I stole from them, even if it cost me. And it did cost him to be able to pay restitution for those that he had wronged. How about the woman at the well? Was her life the same after she left the encounter with Jesus at the well? Or was it different? It was different, right? She was no longer just going to pursue her own agenda of having man after man after man in her life. She said, no, I see who Jesus is. And I see what he wants me to be. And I'm going to live it out. How about the Apostle Paul? Himself was murdering followers of the way, Christians. And when he had an encounter with Jesus, suddenly he went and he just loved people for the sake of Jesus and shared with them the good news. See, there's measurable change when repentance comes into our life. My question is, does your life illustrate true repentance? Does your life illustrate true repentance? Is there real evidence in your life that you have repented from doing wrong and are now pursuing what God desires and wants? Do you have a testimony for how he's changed your life? As we wrap up this morning, we have a few more verses. Verse 12. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wrong, but it was in order that your diligence for us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. What brings a father comfort? What brings a spiritual father comfort? What brings our heavenly father comfort? Knowing his children are listening to him. Knowing his children are listening to him. I, I had an illustration here, but I don't have time. But sometimes it's so reassuring when you know that your children are listening because you can keep them out of danger. Amen? Are you diligently listening to your father's voice? Verse 13. In addition to our comfort, we rejoiced even more over the joy Titus had because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. Titus had come to Corinth and they had received him and they had refreshed his spirit. For if I have made any boast to him about you, in other words, Paul loved to brag about his churches. He loved them and he was excited about their growth. I have not been embarrassed 
But as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be the truth. Hallelujah. And his affection towards you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you, Paul says to the church in Corinth. Finally, what brings a father joy? What brings our heavenly father joy? Having confidence that his children humbly receive the truth, obey the truth, and allow that truth to transform and shape their lives. That's what brings a father joy. More than anything, I just want my children to know the truth, to follow the truth, and to allow the truth to change their life. That's what I want. Because I know that that's a blessed life, to live in the truth. And I want that for my children. Paul wanted it for the, his spiritual ch- children here in Corinth. And our Heavenly Father wants it for all of us. That's what brings our Father joy. Are you willing to allow God's truth to renovate your life? I leave you with that question this morning. Are you truly willing to allow God's truth, no matter what it says, no matter if it's something that you seem to naturally agree with or not, are you allowing his truth to have the trump card in your life and to renovate you from the inside out? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you are a father who disciplines your children. God, as we approach Father's Day, I'm challenged. I am a father. But not just a a father of natural children, God, but spiritual children. I ask, God, that you will empower me and everyone else in this room that plays some sort of role with children to first allow you to to do a work in us, to discipline us, to repent of sin because we have a godly sorrow, a conviction from the Holy Spirit that we've been doing things the wrong way or we've been doing the wrong thing. God, help us to be moved by your Spirit to repent of that, to have a change in the inner self that manifests itself in our speech and in our actions so that we will better represent you in this world. It's your kindness, God. You've been so kind to us. It's your kindness that motivates us to repentance, that moves us to have a change of mind, a change of heart, because we see what you've done for us and how much you love us. God, help us to love you in return. Help us to be willing to hear your voice, to listen to your voice, and God, allow it to shape our lives for your glory as we represent you in this world and in this community. In Jesus' name.